0: Did I tell you I got a puppy? (laughs) Hang on a second. (laughs) Come here. I would like you to meet Ruthie, full name Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's (laughs) three and a half months old. And um, she, well, let's just say like her namesake, she's strong of will. (laughs) So she um she may make herself heard from time to time.
1: So I just say I actually love about your podcast that you let yes. life happen on it. I love it. <laughs> this is one of the few audio experiences I know of where the dog in the background will somehow make
0: sense. This is a little more life than we like to allow for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is way more life than we are used to. Um but she's a lively little puppy. I'm Abigail Disney. Welcome to All Ears, my podcast where I get to go deep with some super smart people. This season, I'm talking to good troublemakers, artists, activists, politicians, and others who aren't afraid to shake up the status quo. We'll talk about their work, how they came to do what they do, and why it's so important in hard times to think big. You can't think about solutions without being a little optimistic. And man, oh man, I think we need some optimism right now. It's Advent. And as any good Catholic girl can tell you, Advent is a season of waiting, of patience, of slowing down. This is when the night dips down to its deepest and darkest, just before it yields to a tiny point of weak but promising light. As it happens, the weeks between a presidential election and inauguration always take place during Advent. And until this year, that thought never occurred to me. But wow, as the days continue to shorten and we wonder just how much darker things can be, as we all wait for January 20th, we are all getting a powerful lesson in the waiting and hopeful nature of faith. So that's why I'm delighted today to welcome my friend, Krista Tippett, because she knows a little bit more than the average bear about the nature, the struggle, the gift of faith when the darkness is at its most oppressive. Every week, Krista Tippett's on-being makes its way into our homes and cars and workplaces, and what she does once she's there is revolutionary. In a culture bent on valuing only what can be touched, what can be counted, and what can be monetized— Krista consistently asserts the relevance and even necessity of those aspects of life that are none of the above. Krista Tippett has become a broadcasting institution, also producing radio and live content for NPR, writing books, lecturing, convening, and more. She is also as kind, smart, and thoughtful as you might have imagined she was. So, as we enter the season of light at a pretty dark moment in our history, I can think of nobody better with whom to discuss how we heal our individual and collective souls. So, Krista, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome. Ugh.
1: I I don't know if I can say anything after that introduction. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Every word of it heartfelt and true, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, on being, let's just start there. I like to imagine the pitch meeting. What, what was that pitch meeting like where you walked in and said, I have this big idea and I'm going to talk about like
1: being, you know, speaking of faith is what started first. And, um, and that was in the early, I like to say in the early century, right? So it was, (laughs) it was, you know, it was, it was actually before September 11th, 2001, that I started talking about this, but after 2000, September 11th, 2001, religion was everywhere in the headlines in a catastrophic way. Um, And, and we had a, we had an evangelical president in the white house. So I started saying, we need to talk, uh, we need to talk about this part of life in its fullness and its complexity. And that was a hard sell, but, but we, you know, we managed to get that going. And then about five years in, what I realized is that we had this thing called speaking of faith and every week, every day we got emails from people saying, I'm an agnostic or I'm atheist, but what you're talking about are conversations that I want to be part of and I have to get over the language of speaking of faith every time you start the show. We had people from such a broad range of, of the way this part of life is practiced. I, I had thought it was important in the early century to say yes this is public radio, and yes, we are speaking of faith, mm-hmm. and in a way that is going to open your imagination up and engage your intellect rather than shutting those things down. But at some point, I realized that that's, the title wasn't spacious enough, and I realized that what I'm fascinated by are the animating questions behind this part of life. and And so that was the process that started this so what do we call this? What is the name? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. on being was, it was hard to find naming is difficult. And, boring, oh, yes. And ultimately you have to live into a name. Mm-hmm. But what I liked about it was the hospitality of it. And mm-hmm. for me, it also has these really deep, lovely theological Echoes, right? The mm-hmm, name of mm-hmm. God. I will mm-hmm. be who I will be. Or mm-hmm. actually, I am. Yeah, I am. am who I am. Yeah. But actually, in the Hebrew, it's I will be who I will be. So it, it's a word that sounds simple and maybe even vague, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of beauty
0: and there's also a lot of mess to it if you actually mm-hmm. kind of open it up. I mean, that's the job of faith and conversations about meaning, right? Taking a big pile of spaghetti and pulling the strands out and making sense of them. Yeah. I mean, just.
1: Just as you said, you, know, you I love the way you spoke about Advent. You know the thing that mm-hmm. I think we um, we don't p- consider about this part of ourselves and this part of life and these traditions is they are often there for us precisely in the mess, right? Mm-hmm. They are there for us when things do not add up. and when mm-hmm. there are no answers and they meet us there and say, yes, this is a part of being alive.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: we can, find like there's a searching and there's a there's a kind of sacred confusion that happens mm-hmm. when things stop adding up. Mm-hmm. That is yeah. so often an invitation to growth.
0: You know, you always start the show off with that question about your guest's spiritual foundation and I think it's such an interesting question because I always see how it brings out a really interesting part of a person who isn't necessarily always about that question. Tell me what it is you hope to reveal. When you start there with a guest. So it's, I found it kind of a magic question
1: and, but it's, it's really important the way it's framed. So I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not asking somebody, are you religious? I'm Mm -hmm. not asking, tell me about your spiritual life, which I think any of us, including me would be, would be tongue tied and unable to meet that question. Um, Asking somebody about that, what I have learned, and I didn't know this in the beginning, I learned it, is that asking somebody about the spiritual background of their childhood, it it takes them into their bodies, okay, just because memory takes us into our bodies. And, you know, this is a contrast for me that I very much want to, have always wanted to dive into between the really cerebral and argumentative way we do religion publicly Mm -hmm. and politically and actually the experience of it. And so... For some reason, and it it has surprised me at times, especially when I've talked to people who are really not at all religious, right? Right. Um, For some reason, letting the question be about the spiritual background of your childhood makes people really free to Mm -hmm. wonder about that out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I've also learned that is fascinating (sighs) And very much in sync with why I wanted to do all of this in the first place, these kinds of conversations is because mm-hmm. what it often takes people to are questions,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it or mm-hmm. fascinations, like amazement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, right. it takes them to, I, and some of those questions are hard. Some of those questions are about are about why people are terrible to each other. Some, some mm. sometimes those questions are about being lonely, sometimes the spirit, you know, I can't mm. remember who this was, but this one has really stuck with me. The person whose memory of church was how his father drove them to church and stayed in the car and read the paper while they went to church. Yeah. And so what I've found, though, is that is that beyond whether the answer to that is fascinating, which it sometimes is, or just kind of, you know, simple, the question itself plants somebody in a really soft, searching place in themselves, Mm -hmm. and it joins up their head and their heart and their body so that when I'm speaking to them, even by way of technology, so we're not even in a room together, I'm getting all of them. And that comes through in Mm -hmm. their voice, which is also embodied, and the people listening partake of that experience, too.
0: Yeah. I love that you don't ask people directly about believing in God or specifically religion, because when you ask people about their their formation, they they tell you a lot about their parents, their siblings, the cultural context they yeah. grew up in. They, you know, and and that's so much richer. Now you grew up in a very interesting cultural context, very different from the one you live in today or the one that you grew up in after you left home. Tell me, tell me about Oklahoma.
1: Yeah, I grew up in um, a small town called Shawnee, Oklahoma, and I grew up Southern Baptist. But church was so much more I mean we went to church three times a week um, but mm. even so it was more than a place we went to it was the center of of community it was the center of social life My grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher evangelist and he had a second grade education mm. and And he was one of the smartest people I I knew and had a really big life of the mind for him all of that was was centered around and grounded in his Bible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He was afraid though. He he was afraid of his big mind. And he was afraid mm-hmm. he'd never been taught or invited to bring his questions to his faith. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, looking back now, if if you ask me about the spiritual background of my childhood, I think that I was I was tuned into that in him for some reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 that was forming what I was also tuned into. That's with me even now, where I I live, as you say, in a very different world. I live in a different part of the country. He was full of complexity. His faith was so judgmental, and it really was. And he was the most loving, playful, funny person I knew. And so that, I think that that sense of complexity and even contradiction made its way into my sense of who God is. And I know that that makes its way. Into my imagination now, as we live in a country that is so full of stereotypes and simplifications Mm -hmm. and fear about, you know, the other side and even different parts of the country, and we have this rural-urban divide. And because of the world I grew up in, I just know that none of those sweeping generalizations about Mm -hmm. people on the basis of one thing they did or said or who they voted for— tells anything like the full story Mm -hmm. of their humanity.
0: Stop it. Please stop it, dog. Just sit in my lap and bite my face. There. So you left Oklahoma and you went to Brown University and that had to have been a massive culture shock. What was harder for you about that culture shock at Brown, coming home or being at Brown? Oh, it was...
1: Yeah, when I think back to my 18, 19, 20 year old self, I have such compassion for her, but she didn't have any compassion for herself, right? It was so dramatic that that move I had made from it felt like one planet to another. Mm-hmm. Because it was such an all-encompassing world that I came from. As I said, you know, yeah. church was life and there was a complete belief system and there was a way to see the world. And and it was it was a small place and it was in a time when it was much harder to see beyond the boundaries of any place than it is now, and so it, it was just confusing to me for this entire world that had not just made sense, but been the only thing that made sense. Right for 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 it to, I could not am, I could not figure out how that how it fit, like how it even coexisted out there mm. alongside this other reality of kind of this East Coast intellectual world, which I found thrilling, yeah, and I just soaked it up like a sponge, it didn't alienate me actively in a way from where I came from. It it gave me a lot of new questions, but it also just made me feel like there are these different worlds in the world, and I didn't know what to do with that. When I came (laughs) home, I found it so disembodying, because again, I you know, I right. left the planet I now inhabited. And I and I couldn't just come home for two weeks and make the transition. So when I yeah. was home,
0: I just ended up feeling kind of alien. So so you kept going further and further away from Oklahoma, right? You you became a reporter, you went to Berlin, you worked in Germany for a while, and you found your way to the State Department. Yeah, um, I was
1: fearless, right? Like I had gone yeah. from Shawnee, Oklahoma to Providence, Rhode Island. And I could go anywhere after that. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so there you are in divided Berlin and you're working with the American ambassador. And and it's so interesting to me that in the way you talk about your life, that's what led you back to Divinity School? Yeah. Okay, but you're gonna have to explain that.
1: You know, I interviewed Brian Stevenson a couple of weeks ago, and we there was we talked a little bit. He's about he's about my age, which is to say he's also about your age. And you know, he went to law school, right? I mean that's what you you know there were there were there were certain paths in the 1980s if you wanted to change the world and one of them was law school and one of them was getting into policy right into into politics yeah. in a way and 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 journalism for sure so I I I'm learning to be more respectful of my younger self and see how I kind of hustled my way into places that it was really improbable yeah. that I should be but I also was was fortunate to be kind of in the right place at the right times. But anyway, like, so I was aware as I moved through my 20s, as I looked at my resume, which of course your resume doesn't feel like a resume when you're living in no, it, you know? No. I felt like a failure and I was second guessing myself all the time. Mm-hmm. But my resume actually was just outstanding. I, mm-hmm. you know, it, I went on my Fulbright to Bonn and I and I interned in the New York Times Bureau and then I got to go be the stringer in Berlin. And, and then I got hired by the, by the State Department. And yet it was so unsatisfying. <laughs> it was so inadequate. Mm. It, the, the, I mean, it was also wonderful. But I was in, in divided Berlin,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in this city, which was <laughs> talk about that experience of there being many worlds within the world. So here I am in one city that has been split down the middle at the end of World War II. And divided into two completely, not just different, opposing um, political and ideological worldviews, but actually two worldviews that were at war. It was a Cold mm-hmm. War, but they had missiles pointed at each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I saw people my age being raised with two utterly different versions of the history of their people. And the history of their people mm-hmm. was a history that was quite extraordinarily important and terrible in world history, right? For a lot of yeah. other people. I was in the land of the country of, uh, that made up the word Wanderlust, you know, mm-hmm. the Germans mm-hmm. who, who were perpetually restless. And I was, but I was, I was spending my, my time, a lot of my time in East Germany with Germans who had been locked, locked inside this yeah. wall and this border. And you would get a passport when you got to be 65 it was basically like this great social experiment and and what i started seeing because i cuz i cuz i knew people on both sides of the wall i had access to both sides of the wall as a journalist and then and then with my wonderful american diplomatic access i saw the great the great kind of essential human drama unfolding which is i watched how people on the eastern side of the wall could you could literally have nothing you know putting quotation marks around Around that, but have Mm -hmm. nothing that we think of as as including their freedom, right? Including their, just their dreams.
0: Yeah. They they didn't have basic
1: choices. And still, people created, not everybody, I mean, that crushed some people. Mm -hmm. But I saw, I saw how people could still, human beings could still create lives of dignity and beauty and intimacy Mm -hmm. and creativity. And at the same time, in West Berlin, where I spend the other half of my time, I see that you can in quotation marks again, have everything
0: mm-hmm. and
1: all the choice and all the freedom and have a pretty superficial
0: mm-hmm.
1: existence. And so mm-hmm. I just got fascinated by, you know, how the the missiles, the the weapons mm-hmm. in the ideological battle was supposed to be about ultimate things. Mm-hmm. And it was potentially about where, whether people would live or die. And we really did feel that. We really did feel that, that that could happen. But this other choice of of what it means of leading a worthy life, of choosing that, of crafting that, I also saw Mm -hmm. that the policy didn't address that. Mm -hmm. And at the end of my, my my diplomatic years in Berlin, I was working with people who were political appointees at a very high level who were nuclear arms experts, and I saw a lot of people with great, big exterior lives and really mm. impoverished, alarming, mm-hmm. alarmingly emotionally impoverished inner lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, all of that combined to kind of send me away having had an an incredible experience that I was grateful for, but really confused. And it kind of, yeah. you know, ultimately, I wasn't using the word spiritual. I wasn't thinking about religion, but it kind of led me back into what are the traditions, what are the places in human life where we've actually
0: looked at this and mm-hmm. wondered about this and had a conversation about this? Were you—this is this is something I always encountered because I, you know, even as a pretty young person would would find myself in rooms of people with a lot of power— and I was always a little shocked by how much they just didn't have in their lives. That, that, that you know, if you're talking about ultimate things, shouldn't you be thinking about ultimate things? I mean, I, I recognize what you're talking about in what you saw in those people in the embassy. And and I, I, I can totally see how it would drive you to Divinity School or to somewhere else. But was it a disappointment, exactly? Or was it to make yourself prepared to be a better version of that.
1: When I left Berlin, I still thought that I would be, that I would, that you know, that I would stay on that track, because I, you know, mm-hmm. at this point I had good, great networks almost on, you know, both sides of the political aisle, like I would go back to D.C., I would get a job, I would, uh-huh. and um, because I couldn't imagine not wanting to do that if I could. So it was, it took me a while to realize that that just wasn't who I was. But but also let me, I mean, to your question, Divided Berlin was a really strange and unusual place for me to land. And I was able to, to get into these really high places because, you know, Berlin on the one hand was the fault line of the Cold War. And on the other hand, it was a it was an island in the great communist sea. It was hard to get yeah. to. It was in some ways, in its own special way, a small town, like full of spies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. full yeah. of all this intrigue. Yeah. But you could if you were if I landed there as a New York Times stringer and I could know anybody I wanted to know. Um mm-hmm. and mm. so so here's the thing. I I I managed to kind of skip over maybe some years that it would have taken me if I'd been doing this in a normal place. And I was and I and I was I was right in the room at the pinnacle of certain kinds of power. And so I saw, like, this is who I would be spending all my time with mm-hmm. if I stay on the Like, this is success, yeah. right? And I was like, yeah. is this what I want mm-hmm. to be when I grow up? Is this who I want to be when I grow up? Are these the people I want to be spending the rest of my life with professionally? Mm-hmm. But it was very yeah. confusing
0: to be thinking that. Yeah. But isn't it, uh, this is part of the problem, right? Because the people who have the kind of character to be asking themselves that question take themselves out of the equation i mean it's a self-selected universe for emptiness it is it's i felt really
1: i would i wouldn't have known even to use these words then but i felt morally unsettled like profoundly unsettled about this being the way the world was mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, still to this day, you know, the more powerful people I meet, the more, you know, shocked I am by the level of um, mediocrity I find, Um, not just in terms of their spiritual lives, but even in terms of their intelligence, honestly. It's just hard to understand. Well, it's hard to understand how you can be driven by anything but ambition to make your way to the top.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I also think I think it's a dynamic that we need to own as a culture, right? Because mm-hmm. we this is what we reward. We reward loud external lives of wealth, power, and celebrity. Mm-hmm. So is it any wonder yeah. that, that that this is that this is who who rises above the surface and runs for office and runs right. things? I mean, I think the other strange idea that right. we have because we do value the acquisition of wealth so much like we just do culturally but but we've also kind of we make this weird equation like like mm-hmm. if you make money that does mean you're smarter or better or more worthy right we and really across a lot of our other divisions yes. yeah. right that's not yeah. a that's that's not a yeah. democrat or republican thing it's not a red blue thing it's not yeah. a rural urban thing um it's not a generational thing like mm-hmm. we we, no. we have a kind of reverence for people
0: who make money. Yeah, and we've equated wealth with value. Yeah, we've equated wealth
1: with value. Yeah. And, with value. yeah. and the yeah. truth is, like, making money is, is, is one skill, right? Like, the certain kinds of intelligence and strengths that go into that mm-hmm. are just a certain kind of intelligence and strength.
0: You know, you talk about the moral imagination a lot, Um. And so, and and that I think that you've put your finger on the thing that got sort of exorcised, if we can use an upside down word for it. Like, how would you define the moral imagination? Where have we put it? (laughs) How do we bring it back into public life?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most important questions we have to pursue as a society Mm -hmm. moving forward. Because the problem is, we don't, as you said Mm -hmm. a minute ago, like, we... We know how to value. We know how to value wealth and profit. We haven't created metrics to make that that kind of uh, insertion of, a, of an idea into a into a business setting. And I mean, to me, to me, moral imagination. I mean, there's so many ways to talk about it. But 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 you are know, fundamentally. It's like it's like what what questions do we ask? I think everything comes back to the quality of our questions. Mm. Um, uh, you know, we know that in science, but it's also true in life, um, mm.
0: uh, the quality of our questions. And the and the problem with discourse in this country is it's all exclamation points. Yeah.
1: It's all arguments, opinions, it's all cerebral. Yeah. We're so good at asking when and how much, mm-hmm. like what will we do? Right. And and right. moral imagination is about the question of why. We still need those other questions. We still need those other mm-hmm. pursuits, but, but we need to hold them in a in in balance and in a creative tension, and these other kinds of inquiry, they're going to slow us down. But you know, mm-hmm. maybe one of the things about twenty twenty is it has slowed us down, right? Yeah. And so we yeah. we know how this feels now, and we and we and we don't want to stay like this. I mean, you started out speaking about Advent, and I feel that this this December, this this Advent, this midwinter, the natural world itself calls us inside. It calls us inside. It invites us to get still, whether that feels natural or not, Mm -hmm. or is convenient or not. And what's at stake in this moment before we make this passage out of 2020 and into a new year is that this year has pointed us towards so many essential questions and wonderings about who we want to be on the other side of this and 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 before the vaccine arrives right we we need to let ourselves settle with all of this back in march april may where where we suddenly not just as a culture but as a world had to ask what's essential
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what is not
0: mm-hmm.
1: and essential were nurses and teachers People, people who feed
0: us are essential. It's such a clear message we're being sent here about, like, you can't build an economy without caring. You can't build an economy without love at the center. And because feeding and caring and nurturing and teaching, these are all acts of love. Yeah. Yeah. To me,
1: this is a, this, what we were just talking about, this is, this is a move
0: of, towards moral imagination,
1: it's mm-hmm. a challenge. I think
0: so. If healing were possible, where would it come from? I, would, are leaders going to bring us? Um, where should we be looking to for the tools and the language and the people who can bring us toward healing?
1: I really do believe that that the question for each of us about how we want to conduct ourselves and what kinds of spaces you know civic spaces public life the the political realm is a tiny sliver of it but like our workplaces are are civic spaces zoom is a civic space right yes our neighborhoods even our families because the thing is these fractures run through all of our mm-hmm. lives they don't just run state to state or county yeah. to county, right? They yeah. they run neighborhood to neighborhood. They run mm-hmm. house to house, right? Mm-hmm. They run through our families.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they there's do. a very real sense in which we have to figure out what healing, like, we, and we have the opportunity to figure out what healing mm-hmm. is and how it can work very close to home. And And the other thing that was interesting to me that we pay less attention to is, you know, yes, the presidential... The presidential voting showed mm-hmm. us to be a very divided nation, but all across the country, at the very local level, there were there were these fascinating referendums that were passed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And there were and there's all this social creativity and experimentation. Yes. Um, but my favorite um, under underpublicized uh, <laughs> event <laughs> on election night, twenty twenty was in Oklahoma, which was, as in 2016, one of the first states to go red, to get colored and all red. The first non-binary uh, mm-hmm. public official was elected to yeah. a public office in the United States, and they are 27 years old and black and Muslim. Mm. And in wow. every way, not... The stereotype, can, <laughs> any stereotype right? of mm-hmm. w- of what Oklahoma is, and that mm-hmm. that's the new reality. We are changing. So part yeah. to me also in terms of keeping hope alive, because hope is a muscle that keeps us moving mm-hmm. and acting and doing as well. Uh, there's this biblical saying like, "Develop eyes to see and ears to hear." Right? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. is going to come at you automatically in your newsfeed? in what gets presented as, as what's the story of what happened in the world today is going to miss the love, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. going to miss the care. It's going to miss the Black Muslim non-binary public officials yes. in Oklahoma. It's going to yes. miss the experimentation in communities from places all over the country mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. that defy turning any of that into a demographic or a voting mm-hmm. block. Right? Yeah. So developing eyes to see and hear. And I want to say, I mean, this is pragmatic. Okay. It's spiritual, but it's pragmatic. It's about seeing the fullness of reality, it's about Mm -hmm. getting a true reality base. Politics doesn't give us that now. I don't think journalism gives us that. It gives us a partial reality base. And to me, I think spirituality at its best is it equips us to befriend reality in all its complexity and its mess in mm-hmm. ways that that you know the politics or or our faith in the market which is real mm-hmm. absolutely do not do.
0: Yes, I love that idea of befriending reality. I mean fear I think is the most powerful spiritual force in American life right at this moment. And the cure to fear is moral courage. And in public life we just lack Anyone with moral courage living in public life right now, ha, where's it going to come from? Who is going to step into the breach? I know that, that
1: fear and pain, like in public, they turn up as, as anger, which is like strength. And it's no more respectable to, to just be in pain or to actually just be afraid. Mm-hmm. Like to, let's just say, I am afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to shroud that so that you're, you're yeah. not just afraid, you're, you're self-righteous, you're angry, you're doing something about it. It's not that something yeah. doesn't need to be done. Yeah. But, so I want to say that another calling for this time, it's not a, you know, there are so many callings and there are things to fight for and there is justice to be won and there are people to be protected right? There are, mm. there are people who need other bodies thrown between them and danger. And yeah. I think another calling that that any of us can start to exercise in our world is to be a calmer of fear, mm-hmm. to create yes. spaces where people can be in pain and that can be true.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, yeah. and 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 where people can be afraid and that can be true. Because like the things we know in life- We don't apply in public life. And to me, that's another step Uh towards healing that we that we that we not just get to do, but must do. And one of those steps is like, first of all, the people we know the best who are most like us also disappoint and hurt us, right? Yes. They also get consumed by fear and anger and 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 don't rise to their best selves. And and we know oh. that when that happens, if we're able to stay in relationship, it's because yes. there are moments where people admit that they were wrong. but it, it's never a perfect linear line, right? Like there's confession and there's forgiveness, and there's and there's often doing the same thing again, right? yeah, but what we do in public, or at least what happens on social media. I mean, I've watched this is that if somebody whose opinion is reviled or or sus- mm-hmm. or suspected. Shows that they might have some questions, then they get mm-hmm, leapt mm-hmm. on, right? Yeah. And there's yeah. this pile on. Yeah. That's not yeah. how change happens. It's not how change yeah. happens in human life. It's not how change is going to happen in communal life. What
0: What do your grandfather think of what you do?
1: I, in some ways, I have felt across the years that you know I ask all these questions on on his behalf. In part, the questions he was mm-hmm. too afraid to ask or hadn't been invited to ask. Mm. Um, after 9-11, um, I, uh, a few years after 9-11, I got a a letter from a Southern Baptist minister, I think in Alabama. If you remember all the, the terrible suspicion of, of Islam and of Muslims, um, that was so Mm -hmm. intense in those years and, you know, has continued to be intense in, in, in places. But he said, you know, I don't, I, he, 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 he wasn't. He didn't say, I think Muslims are going to heaven. I think they're just like us. But what he said is, what I know is that the way people are speaking about Muslims, human beings, and thinking about them and treating them is not Christian. And Mm. he had actually written this beautiful children's book to share with the children in his congregation so that they would treat their Muslim neighbors with kindness and with Christian virtues of love and hospitality. And I had this fantasy that if my grandfather had lived into the 21st century, right, if he'd, if he'd grown into this, into this very different world or, he, or if he'd been alive in this world, that maybe that would have been a move that he would have made too. So I have hung on to that and enjoyed that.
0: You know, we have these people in our lives that um, are the hardest for us and yet the ones that draw us. And mine, mine was my mother. And um, I think that in On Being, you were maybe cobbling a little pathway home. <laughs> yes. Um, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think you were. So one, one last question, and that is, is there a lesson that you take away from all these years of On Being? Um,
1: I, I think that the biggest thing that it plants in me is a comfort with mystery and it, you know when i say that it could sound like a kind of woo woo <laughs> you know fluffy space yeah but you know it's in some ways i feel that it is what i'm ta- what i'm saying is also like confirmed by by everything we're learning in science like that the mystery of ourselves right that mm-hmm. the fact that we are learning with absolute clarity in the laboratory that none mm-hmm. of us is an equation mm-hmm. that adds up that none yeah. of our positions are as logical or rational as they feel to us yeah and i also think like in that religion in that religious world i grew up in i think my grandfather you know he was terrified of mystery right his faith had so many certainties attached and and those were those were a foundation to stand on. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he came in a covered wagon, and there was incredible trauma mm-hmm. and poverty and, mm-hmm. I think, all kinds of abuse. So, so that was true of him. So he, those certainties helped him stand, um, and they were meaningful. And I, I don't want to mm-hmm. just see the, say that they were a crutch. But mm-hmm. all of our traditions, including my grandfather's Bible, yes, ask us, like, that there, there, is, there is absolutely a bedrock um uh certainty in fact yeah. that there's a lot that we cannot see cannot know cannot tie up cannot mm-hmm. name cannot pin mm-hmm. down in
0: yeah. this lifetime are you are you a, a ts eliot fan i i do love ts eliot um, yeah because one of the lines that always had me was where is the life we have lost in living where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge where is the knowledge we have lost in information the cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us further from God and nearer to the dust.
1: And that's it. That's the thing yeah. about, first of all, mystery is a common human experience. It's in birth, it's in death, it's in falling in love, right? It's in, it's in taking a walk. Yeah. So mystery is real and it's just a fact. And that's what I've learned is it's also about being reverent before that Mm -hmm. is also about creative possibility.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is a beautiful place to take it. And I just want you to know the whole time we've been talking about the meaning of life and everything, um, Ruthie just fell asleep (laughs) in a huge pile of my underwear. And she went totally silent and is, like, comatose. (laughs) So that's all she really needed. Oh, it's so good to talk to you. It's so good to talk to to you about
1: important
0: things. Yeah, I know. I so enjoy talking to you. There is so much more to tell you about Krista Tippett. You can find her beautiful books, Becoming Wise, Speaking of Faith, and Einstein's God, wherever you find books. But please, especially at an independent bookseller. And you can listen to On Being wherever you find your podcasts, where you can also find Poetry Unbound, This Movie Changed Me, Living the Questions, and Becoming Wise. You can also learn more about the On Being project and the Civil Conversations project at onbeing.org. You are so kind to join me, Krista. Thanks. Oh,
1: thank you, Abby.
0: We will be off next week, but we'll see you again on January 7th. Okay, everybody good? Then I'm hanging up so I can take this crazy dog outside. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. The show was produced by Alexis Pancrazi and Christine Schomer. Lauren Wimbush is our associate producer. Sabrina Yates is our production coordinator. Our engineer is Veronica Rodriguez. Bob Golden composed our theme music. The podcast team also includes VP of production, Aideen King. Our executive producer is Kathleen Hughes. Learn more about the podcast on our website, forkfilms.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review All Ears wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.